You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Again, welcome. If you're new to Stonegate, let me catch you up to what's been going on around here. We are now uh, 18 weeks deep into a gigantic karate kick to the spiritual face, also known as the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been in this thing for 18 weeks, and if you've been around here at all, you've probably been picking up on some themes that are coming up in Jesus' words throughout this sermon. Uh, In almost every turn and moment of this sermon, Jesus seems to be poking at us, but the thing that he's poking at is not necessarily our behaviors per se, but the motives behind those behaviors. That's the thing that he keeps bothering us with, right? He's digging down deep into our intentions, like our heart, what's in the driver's seat of what we do, right? So like we saw this a lot in chapter 5, it's not... It's not murder that's the great crime, but it's actually hatred in my heart that bubbles up into all kinds of evil, like murder. It's not just adultery that brings us judgment, but it's that lustful heart that that ultimately manifests in adultery and all other forms of sin. And so it starts at the heart. In fact, if you're looking for like a one-word summary of like, what's the word that I could paint over this whole sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and say this is what it's about, a really great three-letter, one-word summary for this sermon is why. Why? Why do you do what you do? What, 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 What drives you? If you're able to answer that question for yourself, you're going to actually get to start to know the real you. And if we're taking what Jesus says seriously here, what this sermon is doing is it's not allowing us to to make Christianity just about the things I do, just about being a better person, just about being uh, a guy who cusses less or doesn't sleep around or do those bad things. Jesus won't allow for that in the Sermon on the Mount. Authentic Christianity is so much more than that. Have you guys sensed that over these past weeks? It's, it's, It's bigger than that. You can't fake real Christianity because real Christianity has everything to do with the one part of you that you can't do anything to change, and that is your heart. Like, I can edit my activities, right, and I can change what my hands do, but I'm really powerless at the end of the day to change my affections, my heart, my motives, what drives me. Because of that, we need help. That's what this sermon is is doing for us. You can't fake this thing, and you can do a lot of external religious things all day, but, but one of the things that keeps coming up is Jesus is not calling that being a Christian. That's not the word Jesus would put toward uh, us doing our external activities right. He would say that it might be religious, but it's not being a Christian. He does have a word for the type of person Uh, that does external things right, but inside their motives are wrong. He does have a word for it, but it's not the word Christian. We see this word pop up in chapter 6. It's the word hypocrite, right? 
hypocrite. And you, you know that word. You've heard that. It's a, it's a Greek term originally referring to an actor who would wear different kinds of masks to play various roles, right? So you see the point. Like the, a person would put on a mask to do things that he, he really at his core isn't about doing, but he's playing a role. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying this sort of fiction Christianity is. It's like wearing a mask and playing a role. It's not okay. It's I'll tell you what it's like. It's like the, the Truman Show. Yeah? Okay, 1990s, one of the best movies of the 90s. If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you. The Truman Show, uh, Jim Carrey, it's a, it's a movie about a character named Truman who, who discovers over the course of the film that his entire life, from like day he was born to like that day, has all been one gigantic TV show. Like he's just on a show. He's the main character in a TV show. And it's, the, it's a bizarre thing to watch because he has all these relationships and interactions with people in his life, but, but they're not real, right? The weirdest one to me is the wife dynamic. Like you're watching this and he has a wife in the movie, but is she, right? And it's like, it seems normal. She makes him dinner, right? She she has conversations with him. It it, it looks like a normal marriage. And then that weirdness starts hitting you because it's occurring to you, that girl is not his wife. That that chick is an actress, right? And she has like a publicist and, and, and she has like an agent. And this is her career. Like it is her career to act like she's married to this guy. What a weird thought. So she, so she might be making dinner for him one night, but she's actually advertising a salad shooter, right? It, it might look like she's nurturing her family, but what she's really nurturing is her fan base. And it just makes you sick thinking about it. It's weird. Why is it weird? Because the thing that's supposed to be about intimacy is actually about publicity. And that's not how it was meant to be. That's not how it was meant to be. And that threat of turning something meant for intimacy into publicity, that's the threat we're confronted with in Jesus' sermon right here. That's what's going on. So last week we were confronted with our motives in our spiritual activities. So Rodney was preaching on like the the external doing that we do, especially when it comes to giving, those types of things. And this week we're being confronted with our motives in our spiritual intimacy. Last week was spiritual activities. This week is spiritual intimacy. We're talking about prayer this week. So if you have your Bible, please get it out. We're going to be in the text a lot. It's Matthew Chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 5 through 15, and, uh, and the question, the big question today that confronts us in this passage is this, what's the real prize you're after when you pray? That's what we're answering. What's, what's the real prize that you're after when you pray? What are you after? What do you, what do you want? What's the win? What's the, when you're praying, what is the reward, the aim for you. Think, what is that? Whatever drives your praying, we're going to see means a great deal more than whether you're praying. And Jesus exposes what we prize most by dealing with where we pray and how we pray. Those are the two movements of this passage, where we pray 
and why and and uh, excuse me how we pray. So let's look at that first movement where we pray. Let's get into the text, verse five. Jesus says this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. A couple things. One, just like last week, Jesus is assuming something. He's assuming that his audience prays. It doesn't say if you pray, right? It says when you pray. He's taking for granted that his audience is a group of people who prays. Now, you might be listening to this sermon right now, and you might not be in that category. You might not be a person who prays at all. In that case, you probably got a whole other set of issues to deal with, like you need to know God. Uh, and you need to trust in Jesus as your Savior. But that's not the starting point for Jesus right now. He knows his audience is largely a religious crew, and I'm looking at a group of people who come to church on Sunday, so I know I'm looking at roughly the same amount of folks right now. We're talking to people who try to pray, okay? Second thing, he's telling them in their praying to not be like a certain group of people. Now, who's that people? Well, he says it. It's the hypocrites, the fakers, the mask wearers. Now, what are they like? Here he says, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Okay, stop again. So far, we, we don't actually have a problem yet, just so you know. This is not the crime of the passage. This is not the issue. This would have been a very normal thing for those Jews to have seen and experienced and participated in back in that day. If you were in a synagogue service, it would have been very normal for, for a, a male to get up during the service and to pray publicly in that service. So that's not weird. It would not have been weird throughout your day to have moments where you're praying in a public uh, setting. They had uh, set moments the Jews did throughout the course of their day where there were moments dedicated to praying. So when there were sacrifices happening in the temple, the horn would blow, and that would be an indicator to the pious Jews to stop where they're at to face toward the temple, and to pray to God. So it wouldn't have been weird if you were a Jew in that day to see people actually on a street corner praying to God. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have felt necessarily uh, phony or hypocritical or flashy. It would have been the normal rhythm that these folks were used to. So the critique isn't necessarily praying in a synagogue, praying on a street corner. He goes deeper than that. He's about to tell us what makes these moments so hypocritical, so fake. He goes on. He says this, that, or so that, or in order that, he's giving us the purpose, he's, what's the motive by which they pray in the synagogues, and the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now we're at the heart of it. Now, now we've hit bottom. Jesus has peeled back that pretty layer of all the things that we do on the outside, and he has exposed that grotesque layer of our motives underneath. You see that? See, the, the big crime here for Jesus is not their prayers, but using their prayers in a wrong way way. That is the issue here. It's taking something meant for intimacy and using it as a tool for publicity. It's taking something meant to be used for one purpose and using it for a purpose it wasn't intended for. So, so you could take a telescope and use it as a baseball bat. That is something you could do 
And you would probably hit a ball or two if you swung it like a baseball bat, but you would have completely destroyed its ability to give you the thing the telescope was made for. The telescope was made so that you could have intimate access with the heavens. In the same way, prayer was made so you and I can have intimate access with God. The reward of prayer is that we get him, but if we use it as a tool for our own publicity, we might get their praise, but we will not get his presence. That's the issue. See that? When you use it for the purpose it wasn't intended for, when I use prayer as an instrument for my publicity, I might get what I'm looking for, I might get their praise, but you will not get their presence, his presence. You won't get it. And I think that we actually know this instinctively as a people. We know this as as a culture. Deep down, we, we have a sense of this. There's even a term for it in our culture. What do we call taking something that's meant to be about intimacy and publicizing it? What do we call that thing? We call that pornography, don't we? Taking something that's meant to be about intimacy and, and publicizing it. That's what we call it. And when we use something as intimate as prayer in this way, we are no less guilty than those folks in Hollywood. At its core, it's doing the same thing. It's publicizing what's meant to be intimate. You see that? Now at this point, hopefully, God's Spirit's convicting you that this is a real thing, like this is an issue. Like hopefully we have a sense now from Jesus that like this is something I need to deal with. This is real, but we're humans and we're prone to try to pass this thing off. Like I could understand how some of us might be like, I, I get that this is an issue for some, but this isn't necessarily my thing, right? Like I'm not, you know, I don't come up on a stage like Stonegate and I'm tempted to pray in front of people. I don't do that, right? I don't go to like a synagogue and promote myself. Like I don't do public promotional things to like, I don't, Welcome, welcome to the number one spot where you're going to be tempted to promote what was meant to be intimate in 2019. Now look, uh, I, I, by the way, I love this middle one. The book she's reading, I don't know if you can read that, Silence and Solitude for the Purpose of Godliness. I love that she tweeted that moment. Um, uh, here's what I'm not saying. I want to be careful right now because uh, th- there's a way to, to go like, dude, you are that you're painting with too broad a brush, and I don't want to be. Uh, I am not saying that social media is the devil, or I'm not saying that, that sharing your life with people online means that you're necessarily a braggart. I don't mean that. A- and to prove I don't mean it, that one's mine, okay? <laughs> just, so, just so we're all clear, that's me right there. So I'm not saying that. There is definitely a way to post in a spirit of wanting to encourage people, to draw people to Jesus, to, to get your eyes off yourself and onto Christ. There is a way to do that. So I'm not saying it's bad. I am saying that if ever there was a threat for you to take something that was meant for intimacy and make it about publicity, it's right there. If ever there was a threat, it's this, right? This is our street corner. This is our synagogue. 
So let's not play games this morning and, and act like, like social media is a neutral zone. You and I, listen, I, this thought is scary, but you and I will stand before God one day and have to give an account for how we managed our accounts. You will have to account for why you tweeted what you tweeted. You will have to account for why you posted what you posted. That is a day that is coming for you and for me. So we don't want to play games about this. Let this... Let us sober you this morning, especially if you're a, a, a frequent player in the social media world. Let this sober you. There is a way to, to publicize which, what, the thing that's meant to be intimate, and it's not okay for some of you this morning. The most godly thing that you could do is to take some time with the Lord this week and just reevaluate how you do your social media, how you, how you handle it. Am I, am I posting for their good or am I posting for my good? What a great question to ask. Am I publicizing what's meant to be intimate? And if so, why am I doing that? Jesus Jesus doesn't want this temptation for us. He knows it's tempting to promote in the public arena, so he commands a better place for us to pray. He does it in verse 6. Look at it with me. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Church, if you want to pray in a way that sees God as the prize, then he says, you need to war against opportunities to publicize yourself. If you want to pray in a way that sees God as your prize, then you have to war against opportunities to publicize yourself. Again, this isn't so much about the prayer closet per se. It isn't about like, do you not have a space in your house where you can do this? Right? That, that's not really the issue. The, the bulk of the audience Jesus was talking to at this time would have had a one-room home. So it's not about like, I need a prayer closet or else I'm a pagan. That's not the thing. The, the, issue, is, the issue is privatizing your intimacy with the Father. That's the issue. Why do we fight for that? Why are we uh, to be people that are so bent on getting alone and being in private in our prayer life. Why? Well, Jesus gives us a really unusual answer in the text. I wonder if you caught it. I missed it at first. But he says this. Essentially, he says, because that's the place God dwells. Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who what? Who is in secret. He is in secret. He resides in a secret place. Now, look, we're good theologians here. We know that God is everywhere, right? Psalm 139, I can't get away from him. He is omnipresent. I can interact with him everywhere. You and I know that, but there is something special about this rendezvous point that causes God to want to disclose himself to his people. It's just there in the text. It's what it says. And we know this, right? We know this instinctually. Think of any secret you've ever shared with anyone. Just think about that. I will bet you $100 you did not live stream that secret on Instagram when you did it, right? That's not what you did. What did you do? You went into a private room 
and you shut the door. You might have even locked it, and you brought your voice down, and you shared that truth or that intimate secret with that person. That's what we do when we're disclosing intimate information with somebody. We get alone. We retreat. In the same way, God prefers the secret place. He is in secret. He knows that when you're truly alone and the phone's on airplane mode, that you won't be tempted to make that moment about anything other than being with him. He knows that about the human condition. Therefore, if if you want to just get right down to it, private praying is more a proof of your love for God than almost anything you could do. Because it's so unsexy, right? There's so little worldly reward for you in it. It is a wonderful litmus test of the genuineness of your faith. You will never find a faker hanging out in his prayer closet. You just won't. Because that's not where fakers go. But it's where the saints go. It's where they go. Listen to how J.C. Uh, Ryle put it. He says this, Of all the evidences of real work of the Spirit, a habit of hearty, private prayer is one of the most satisfactory that can be named. A man may preach from false motives. A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest or unless he is for real. I just want, I want this text to confront us this morning. You should feel bothered by this a little bit. It's what Jesus is up to. I'm, di- I'm going to give you a moment right now. I just want you to close your eyes with me for a second. And I want you to ask yourself a question. This is the question. If I only had my prayer life to go off of, my private prayer life to go off of, what would that tell me about my desire for God? If that was my only interpretive grid for what my life is like with Jesus, my private prayer life, what would that tell me about my desire for God? Think on that for just a moment. Now look up here. Lots of public prayer with very little private prayer has a way of revealing your heart and what it actually desires. It will either show us that their applause or his presence is our treasure, but it will show us one of the two. And therefore, location really does matter. It matters. Does it matter to you? Because it matters to him. So it's about where we pray, but it's not just about where we pray that reveals our motives. It's about how we pray. He's turning to a second part of his argument, and look at verse 7. He says this, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this would have been understood by the Jews at the time, that the Gentiles and other translations translate it pagans. They, they, their normal rhythm for prayer would have been to 
um, sort of summon their gods by repeating their names over and over and over again. And by doing that, they would somehow procure, they would get an audience with their gods. So that's what Jesus was referring to when he says, don't be like them. And again, I think here we are, there's, here's another moment where it's like, this is 2019, is this like a thing that, that I deal with? Is this, or is, you know, I'm not necessarily saying the name of my God over and over to make him hear me. Is this relevant for me? Well, I think it is. There's actually lots of ways that I think this shows up in our lives. Uh, ways that we heap up empty phrases. Let's think about this for a moment. Uh, it, it could be as on the nose as uh, like when I was nine years old. I saw The Wizard of Oz and I wanted a Karen Terrier puppy because they were amazing. And so I prayed every night for about six months that I would get a Karen Terrier puppy. And I would end that prayer time every night for about six months uh, with, and I'm just ballparking here, probably about two million uh, please is. Please, 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 God, please, please, please give me a puppy. Consequently, I, I ended up getting a puppy, which has really messed with my theology, uh, to be honest with you. I, I did get it, um, so I don't know how to work that out. But, but the point is, it, it could be as on the nose as that moment, right? That we literally think that we are invoking uh, God's action on our behalf by just multiplying words. Uh, but it could be that, but, but it could be more subtle than that, right? It could be something like some of the things that we do here uh, in church. It could be some of the responsive reading moments and liturgical moments that a church would do. So like, uh, you know, we, we start our services by reading the word of God together or pronouncing something over each other and you have a part and we have a part and, and there is a way in those habitual liturgical practices, they're very sweet, but they can become rote. They can become just another noise. You, uh, I've said the apostles' prayers so many times I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. And that doesn't please God because it, it, it proves that it's really not about intimacy anymore at that moment. So there's a threat there. That's why we try to mix it up Sunday to Sunday by, by giving different responsive readings so that we can all bear in mind that this is not just about uh, um, performing some ceremonious ritual. This is about knowing God and communing with God. So it can appear that way. Uh, it can appear in other ways. Um, th those sort of like customary, traditional prayers that we pray on a daily basis. Dinner time prayers. Dinner prayers. Ha am, is it just me? Have you, been, have you been at the dinner table like where that dinner time prayer is going down and it's like, that was the saddest prayer. That was, I want to die at the end of that prayer. That was the most dry, dead thing. Did you pray? That was like a, a, a 12th century monk chant. That's what that felt like. You ever felt like, be honest, guys, I feel like that, right? And we get in this habit of habitually praying this thing over our meal as if what we're doing is performing an incantation over our meal so that we could summon God to, to transform that pizza into a salad when it hits our stomach. And it doesn't work like that. Your hips, by the way, are going to do whatever your hips are going to do, no matter if you pray over that pizza or not. I just, that's, that's just a free, that's free, me to you, Okay. The dinner praying is, is more than that, but sometimes we think that we have to say magic words before we eat or else. And I'm, I'm just going to like break a paradigm for you for a second. Please don't kick me out of the church. You don't have to pray before you eat. Do you know that? You don't have to pray before you eat, but you get to pray before you eat. You get to look at God with the eyes of faith and tell him, 
thanks for a meal again. Everything I have comes from you. Thank you. You get to recognize in a prayer before you eat that Jesus is the better bread. You're the bread of life, Jesus. This satisfies, but you satisfy ultimately. You, you get to do that. Even dinner prayers are meant to remind you that God is the real prize. So it's not meant to be stale and repetitive and rote. It's meant to be intimacy. You see that? Intimacy. There's that word again, intimacy. Jesus warns us about this habit, this tendency in us to do that. And so he says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Let's stop here for a second. I want you to notice something. This is a a fascinating moment in in Jesus' sermon. Jesus just said an amazing thing and a really weird thing. First, the amazing thing. The amazing thing is this. He just said, do you know why you don't need to be a repetitive babbler so that you think you're getting God's attention? You know why you don't have to do that? Because he already knows. He knows everything. He knows what you're thinking before you think it. He knows what you're praying before you pray it. You are not persuading him by giving him new information that would make him think, oh, I need to act on your behalf. No, you're not. that's not what it is. So that's the amazing thing. He knows it all, but then he follows it with such a weird thing. Because if it was me, and I had just told you, hey, just so you know, um, God already knows what you're thinking. He already knows what you're going to pray before you pray it. What would the next thing I would say be? Wouldn't it be something like, therefore, don't pray? Right? He knows He already knows. So why would you waste his time telling him stuff that he already knows? Don't pray. But that's not what Jesus says. No, he says, God knows everything you're going to ask him before you ask him, therefore ask him. What does that mean? Right? I had a friend in high school who stopped praying altogether because of this verse. Because when he read it, the logic just seemed to make sense to him. God knows everything uh, that I'm going to pray. So what good is it for me to pray to a God like that? He knows it. He'll take care of it. He'll meet my needs, and I'll just go about my business, right? What's the point of praying? What is the point? Well, the point is that prayer is about something more than data transfer. It's about intimacy. And we know this because that's why Jesus says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. See, if he wasn't your father, then yeah, it it really is nothing more than data transfer. But, But good dads want to hear from their kids, don't they? I I want to hear from my children. I I, I love talking with my kids. It is a joy for me to interact with them. It's not about data transfer. They're not giving me a whole lot of information I don't already know, right? It's about intimacy with them. And if it's about intimacy, then we push into prayer, but not with mindless repetition, right? But with sincere conversation. So, So, in order to help us with this, Jesus ends this whole section by giving us a model prayer that we should pattern our prayer life after. 
That's what he does. Christians over the years have called this the Lord's Prayer. You've probably prayed it plenty of times, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we're going to take a little bit different approach. I'm not, uh, there's no way in the amount of time we have left that we could possibly cover the ground that we need to on the Lord's Prayer. But about three or four years ago, uh, Stonegate did a, a whole sermon series, six-part sermon series on the Lord's Prayer called Teach Us to Pray. So if you want like a thorough treatment of it, just go back into the podcast archives. It's all there. It's a great series, uh, six uh, sermons there for you. I'm going to take a slightly different approach. I just want to look at it through this lens. If what we're saying in this passage is that our Father is the prize in our prayers, then what can we learn about our Father from the Lord's Prayer that would excite us to be with Him? That's, what, that's how we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer right now, okay? So all we're going to do is just go line by line, and we're just going to extract who our God is. We're going to see who He is in hopes that the Spirit will awaken in us a true desire for His presence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This God that wants intimate communion with you is your Father, Christian. He's your Father. You, you've heard this word a ton in this sermon. That's because in just 10 verses, this word Father appears six times. That should give you a clue. This is a very big deal to Jesus. God is your Father, but He's not just your Father. He is your Heavenly Father. Holy. He is transcendent. He is above you. He is both, he is both imminent and he is lofty. He is mighty. He's, it says, hallowed be your name, that his name is holy. It's sacred. He is completely other than us, set apart, totally unique in his perfections. It's that God that we serve, and that holy, heavenly Father is your king. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our Father, I say this all the time, I can't get over it. He's the king of the universe. He runs the whole thing. In heaven, he's in charge. On earth, he's in charge. Everywhere, he's sovereign. And his will that he exercises, he exercises it over everything. Psalm 115 says that our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. He is always doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He is what the Bible calls the only potentate. He is in charge, the sovereign one. And this father king is our provider. Give us this day our daily bread. Whether you know it or not, when you woke up this morning, if you were breathing, which if you're here, it means that you were, it means that God said you could be alive today. The reason you are here is because God is permitting it. The scripture says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything that you have and are is sustained and given by a good God. He strengthens you. He gives you life, air, water, food, your talents, even your job, your profession, your skill sets, all of that, your family. It's all his that he's given to you. Psalm 145, 16 says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's our God. He is our provider. He's our father. He's our king. He's our provider. And it goes on. He's our judge. And forgive us our debts 
as we also have forgiven our debtors. The only person who gets to forgive debts is a judge. There is one person with whom you and I will have to do at the end of all things, and that's God. Listen, every offense you've ever committed, every sin you've ever done, every crime you've ever done, every wrong you've ever advanced against any other person has ultimately been done against God. Psalm 51 says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Our sin and our offense is against a holy, righteous judge who rules with total equity and perfection. And yet, this judge in his nature is bent toward pardoning us and forgiving us. What a, what a marvel. Psalm 133 and 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He's a, he's a God who is inclined to pardon you. Don't miss this. Please, oh, Spirit of God, give us ears to hear how sweet this is. You shouldn't be pardoned, but he's inclined to pardon you. Why? Why does he pardon his people? He can pardon our debts only because, this last point, God himself is our deliverer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How can it be that you could come here this morning and sing these songs to God and pray your prayers to God and we not be zapped by lightning. Because you know that's exactly what we deserve. Why is it that we can, like Hebrews 10 says, actually enter into the holy place and commune with the living God? What would give us the audacity to be able to do that and still live? How is that possible? It's possible because God has a son. And he has sent that son in love to pardon you and to make you his sons and daughters. That's what he's up to in the work of the cross. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the offer. This is who our God is. He is our Father, our King, our Provider, our Judge, and our Deliverer. This is the God who's saying, come and talk to me. Come to the secret place. Come to the quiet place and talk to me. I want to hear from you. It's that. Who wouldn't want to go and spend time with that God? So what do, we, what do we do in light of this? How do we respond to this type of God? There's so many things to say, but I just want to give you two. The first one is this, and it's obvious. It's the main point here. Get alone with God and pray. Get alone with him and pray. Go be with him in the secret place, church. Find him there. Silence your phones. Get alone with him and linger with him in prayer. Commit to it this week. Take time this week to change your plans so that you can get alone with him. Commit to a pattern of solitude with your father. It will change you. I promise that. 
Let your home group know. Let them hold you accountable to it. But fight for this. This is how we get to know our God. I pro- it's going to feel awkward at first. If you're not accustomed to the normal rhythms of alone time with the Lord, it can feel a little awkward. Like, why am I sitting in this big room by myself? Like, why am I doing that? It can be awkward, but I promise you it sweetens toward the end. It sweetens. He will make it a precious time with you. Draw near to God, James says, and he will draw near to you. I know I started to feel this, this conviction a, a year and a half ago when I was studying the word with some guys here at the church, and I just realized, man, God's calling me to more time with him alone than I'm giving. I was not doing great at that. And, and so I, I committed, and I had my guys hold me accountable to regular rhythms of, of weekly, like, retreat with God where I'm just talking with him, just alone with him. And I gotta tell you, it has been changing me. It has been so helpful for my soul. My appetite has been growing for God. I'm getting to know my father more. Fight for that. Get alone with God and pray. That's the first thing. Here's the last thing. Fight to see him as the prize. Fight to see him as the prize. Application one doesn't work if application two isn't happening. Praying doesn't work without prizing. Praying doesn't work without prizing. It's just clanging symbols. It's noise. Praying has to begin with seeing him as the all-satisfying father that he is. It has to begin with that. So pursue that. Gaze at him and look for that. Open up the word of God and ask him to leap out of the pages at you and to to change your paradigm of who he is. Ask him to blow up your heart with these truths that maybe you've grown callous to. But fight to see him as the prize that he is. His presence is the prize in prayer. But you have to see that as true before you rush to a prayer closet. Otherwise, you'll never go. So fight for it. And, and I promise you this. Once you begin to see him as the true prize of prayer, all other prizes of popularity, of acclaim, of notoriety, of getting some likes online, of all of that stuff, all of that will begin to look like the garbage that it is. It's a waste compared to the gem that is our God and knowing him. That's just the truth. It's just like that old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And what does it say? And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what prayer is. Now let's pray together. I want to give you a moment to ask the Holy Spirit for help. To be pierced by things that maybe you're not pierced by. Ask Him for eyes to see things that you didn't see. To change you. Just take a moment. Father, I realize that um, this could be an ironic moment praying on a stage after a sermon like that. But I, I, I want us as a people to, to just be able to say together, we, we want you 
and we want to want you more than we want a claim for ourselves. And so God, in all those hidden parts of my heart where I don't believe that, and there are many, and all those parts of our heart as a church that we don't believe that, and I'm sure there's many parts. God, would you help us? What a silly reward to chase. The praise of men, the eyes of men, when all the while we have the company of God we could have. What a terrible trade it would be to trade you for their applause. God forbid it. Make us more like your son who longed to rush to you in a deserted place, who longed to sit with you for hours, who just wanted to keep company with his dad. I want that heart. Will you give us that heart? Help us, Lord. We're in need. And we believe that you want to help us because you are our Father. And we look to you right now to answer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.